0: Recorded live, Union Inn, Washington, D.C. 1112, 1114, 3rd Street, Northeast. We are steps to Nomegaludet Metro. Nice, brisk walk to Union Station. And a leisurely jaw to the Capitol, Capitol Hill. I am the illustrious Innkeeper Freddie, host extraordinaire. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to Guest Book Podcast Guest Book Podcast, ladies and gentlemen For the last four or five weeks I've had the absolute pleasure Of having a quite accomplished professional drummer Stay at the end And he's been playing Hello Dolly at the Kennedy Center. But what few know about this quite accomplished drummer is that he's also a quite talented screenwriter. Rich Rosenzweig is the name of the person who's staying with us right now. That's me. And so what we're going to do is we're going to split his episode into two parts. One is going to be where we talk about him as a screenwriter, his passion. And the second one, we're going to talk about his time in DC as well as him as a musician his travels all around the world uh, the bands that he's been a part of and uh, the nuances of being a drummer so we have several songs that he has given us to use we got one for the intro here one for the outro here and for the part two we have another intro and another outro so this one is called Once Upon a Time in the West so Rich Tell us about this song, right here.
1: It's a jazz arrangement of themes from, as you said, the film Once Upon a Time in the West. And besides being a film geek, I quickly became a huge fan of certain film composers. One of two that grabbed me right away was the Italian composer Ennio Morricone, who was associated mainly with the Italian director Sergio Leone he was the spaghetti western director of movies mostly in the 60s and i just had to see what could be done with the themes from once upon a time in the west because i love them
0: henry fonda was a 1960 psychopath in this movie pretty he much.
1: was it was an opportunity for america's number one nice guy to play a really really bad guy and he loved it
0: you are from new jersey i am where in new jersey are you from
1: a little town called Rivervale in Bergen County. It's the northeast corner of the state, about 20 minutes from the George Washington Bridge. So going into New York City regularly to see both sets of grandparents was a regular thing. My memories of a little kid coming back from my grandparents in my pajamas with the little feet on the end, lying in the back of the station wagon, looking up and seeing the George Washington Bridge as my father would play classical music on the radio is a strong memory.
0: Classical music in the car, I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> You're the oldest of four, right? right? And your other brothers each have an artistic bent like yourself, right?
1: Um, yeah, we were all into drawing, mostly. Number two brother got into the audiovisual realm of things with corporations, and he's become quite successful And then number three brother got into film and TV as a production designer. My brother was doing quite well, but the business end of the movie business was and remains not so appealing. So he decided to become a full-time artist. And then my youngest brother, who was more of the jock in the family, fell in love with Spain, moved out there, and and now lives with his wife and two children in a city uh, named Valladolid, which is about an hour and a half north of Madrid.
0: And what does he do out there?
1: He is an egg broker.
0: Yes, which, ladies and gentlemen, an egg broker. Yes. What it, is an egg broker?
1: His small company are the middle people between egg farmers and markets and restaurants all over Europe, Israel, and even the United States when we had our little egg crisis a couple of years ago.
0: Your brother that was a production designer. Right. Right. He actually played a part in your path to becoming a screenwriter.
1: Absolutely. Even though I've always been a movie geek my entire life, what Steve's career enabled me to do was to get peeks at screenplays before the movie was made. So that gave me a peek into the film world.
0: What was the first screenplay you wrote?
1: I'm certainly of the camp that truth is always more interesting than fiction. So if you find what it is in the truth that's interesting, great because people will relate to it, or they'll learn something about reality and still be entertained. So you write what you know, and I told the story about a drummer who plays in Broadway pits, but is a jazz drummer at heart, so that pretty much corresponds to my life. For jazz drummers, one of the ride cymbals we all talk about was the symbol that the great jazz drummer Tony Williams owned when he played with Miles Davis, and I thought... Like, what happened to that symbol? And specifically, I thought I would write a story about a drummer who found out that it somehow, through weird circumstances, wound up in the hands of a country and Western drummer who had no idea what he had. So he goes on a quest to somehow get it from this drummer and I, Jinx, and Sue. exactly and i got far enough with it with some friends of mine in los angeles who were filmmakers to get me excited about being a screenwriter for the first time and thinking maybe i should keep doing
0: this was this a zildjian ride K?
1: <laughs> it was it was a k zildjian one family operation since the mid 1600s crazy Uh, the oldest family operation of any manufacturing manufactured product on the planet hand-hammered bronze alloy symbols and every symbol sounded different so that's why you could sort of obsess about ride symbols
0: yeah so a couple things one uh for those who've seen the netflix special with uh, fred armisen I believe it's comedy for drummers, Where <laughs> he talks about the Zildjian facility that's in I believe Turkey.
1: Uh, yeah, they were or the in- Zildjian factory, right?
0: Yeah, that's why he was obsessing over it so much because this this company's been around since the 1600s, and these cymbals are hand hammered. And if you're a drummer, it's I don't want to say it's the mecca, but you definitely, if you were within 50 miles, you would go there, right? So the second thing is when we're talking about the ride K, if if you are a jazz drummer. The model is called a ride K, and then they'll have a, a number that says the
1: diameter. The diameter of the,
0: of the actual symbol, right?
1: They range. A ride symbol would be 18, 20, or twenty-two inches usually. There you go.
0: So yeah. if you are a jazz drummer, this is pretty much the ride symbol that you will use. And right. One of the interesting things is think about like a baseball mitt. When you first get a baseball mitt, you got to break it in. Right. So when you first get a ride K, it has a new sound. Mm -hmm. But as you use it more and more and more and more, you kind of break it in and then it gets, I believe, like a warmer sound, correct?
1: Yeah, a mellower sound. Exactly, exactly.
0: So one of the things that I've heard from from drummers that I've spoken with over the years is that to try to age the, the cymbal faster... What they will do is all these sort of techniques that are like, I won't say urban legends, but just like, you know, tricks of the trade that have nothing to do with anything like specific, but just what this person did. Right. And one thing that I've heard is that they bury it in the backyard or a yard somewhere for quite some time. And that either speeds up the aging process or the dirt somehow gets into it to create the warmer or to create the mellower sound. And. I mean, have you ever done anything like that? I haven't,
1: but it's just so funny that you heard that because it is sort of like an urban legend. I don't know anyone who's done that, but I heard the exact same thing that people who were obsessive about wanting to find a way to mellow the sound of a cymbal, taking a little bit of the bright sound off a cymbal, which would happen with age, might be sped up if you just had it in dirt buried in the ground i love that and it could be totally true i've just personally have never done that and um i don't know anybody i don't think who's done that but it's just funny how all this lore could be about something so specific as symbols for drummers but that is true we do obsess about ride symbols
0: i know if i ever go to the zildjian factory i'm gonna buy one and then throw it in (laughs) Backyard back here and just forget about it Yeah, and come back 20 years later.
1: No, I'm still trying. I'm I'm shopping around two scripts in particular that I think uh, they're both very different, but both very viable and have commercial potential. What are those? One is something inspired by my late uncle who worked at the Chelsea Hotel in the 1960s. Who, when he would tell stories about the Chelsea Hotel, would talk about the celebrities he saw. And for those listeners who don't know, the Chelsea Hotel in the 60s, lots of rock stars were there. So my uncle, he would always mention seeing Janis Joplin there and that would make us all snicker because the idea of my relatively conservative, relatively religious uncle Maishe coming across Janice Joplin, just that, that encounter just seemed particularly funny. So, I wrote a comedy about an aging Jewish masseur who through a set of certain circumstances winds up massaging Janice Joplin after she spends a night at the Chelsea Hotel. After a couple of encounters with her, they have a certain connection. Is this
0: encounters and connections with quotes?
1: No, it's funny you should mention because many people thought, "Oh, wouldn't that be crazy?" He's like in his mid fifties, and they have an affair. And I thought, "Nah, that's too easy and too weird." And <laughs> too and, easy. and 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 because I really, back to truth being more interesting than fiction. Even though this is a fictional story, it was important and also more entertaining to depict Janis Joplin as accurately as I possibly could for who she was specifically at this time, which would put it in the spring of 1969, and I did lots of research on... Janis Joplin, who she was, what her personality was like, how she would have interacted with a guy like this, in my mind, at least. And I would like to think that if and when it's ever read by people who knew her personally, that they would smile and say, yeah, I could see her being like this. The story winds up being a wacky story of this Masura named Maishi going on the road with her during that spring. And there's some bittersweet moments. Of course, there has to be because she dies at the end at the age of 27. But it's more about the effect it has on this character named Maishi who's from a different planet. uh, And much older. And much older.
0: What was so special about their connection?
1: Part of the appeal is the novelty of the two of them being from such different places. You know, to have like a twangy Texas girl who's talking about showbiz and how it affects her, how she loves it, but she also needs to get away from all the insanity of it, was interesting to Maishi. And for Janice to have this kind of old guy who, like I said before, was not a threat, just make her feel really good, listen to her... I think the initial appeal is just the novelty of the two of them doing something that's physically sort of intimate, but not at all what she might be used to. It inspired her to say, hey, I like this guy so much, I'm going to take him on the road with us. And uh, the circumstances of how he finally agrees and how he does wind up on the tour bus with the Cosmic Blues Band, I thought made for a fun story.
0: I'm sure it is. (laughs) Now, your second one that you're also shopping, this is the one that's really, really, really interesting. We're probably going to spend a little bit of time on this one. It's called Hell's Acres. Correct. So
1: the other three scripts that I wrote were what I'd basically gotten into writing screenplays for, which was to write fun, character-driven, independent-style comedies. But I also have a little house up in Columbia County, New York, which is just across the border from lower Massachusetts. And my brother, who's the artist, lives there full time. And we would visit these friends of his who live in a little tiny village called Boston Corners, which is where the three states meet, but it's in New York state. Basically, Boston Corners used to be part of Massachusetts from the beginning of the United States until 1848. This is the key to the story of Hell's Acres. This little village was on the far side of the Taconic Mountains, which is the mountain range that's sort of parallel to the Appalachian Mountains. The mountain range is part of the natural border between Western Massachusetts and New York State, but at the very bottom part the Taconic Mountains sort of veer off in a slightly different direction, and what it did was, when they drew the straight line between massachusetts and new york state to form the border they didn't take into account the fact that the little part of the mountains that veers off to the side left this little tiny patch of a thousand acres on the far side of the mountains it was still part of massachusetts but to to get there from the rest of massachusetts it was a pain in the neck so it was a sleepy little town they didn't have to pay taxes but the disadvantages there were no police that wanted to bother with policing their area yeah Now, America's only 75 years old at this point. Jurisdictions were really important. So if you were hiding from the law, you could just pull into Boston Corners and uh, no one would bother you. And they thought, this is crazy. We should be part of New York State. So they petitioned Massachusetts to let them go and become part of New York State. So once they became part of New York State, they would have law. I know I'm going into great detail here, but in 1848, Massachusetts said fine. And a couple of years later, New York State said, fine, but it had to be a federal law. So in 1852, I believe, Boston Corners was left as being part of no state. And one of the popular pastimes, especially of the folks in New York City, was illegal prize fighting bare knuckles and fights would happen in spots where the crowds could quickly run away if the police were going to chase them. So in 1853, a challenger who was a well-known bouncer at the Gem Saloon in Lower Manhattan named John Morrissey, who was 23 years old, an Irish immigrant, and his nickname was Old Smoke because in a brawl he was pinned against a wood stove his back just started to burn and you could smell his burning flesh and he still didn't go down. And he was going to beat the champ who was a 41 year old Irish immigrant as well, a skilled boxer named Yankee Sullivan. How tall is he? Yankee Sullivan is 5'9", 41 years old and about 150 some odd pounds. John Morrissey is 23 years old, 6'1", and 175 pounds. Well, the reason why this became quite an event back then was at this fight were anywhere from 3,000 to 10,000 tough guys from New York, Albany, and Troy that descended on this town of Boston Corners in October of 1853 to watch what they thought would be an old guy have the crap beat out of him by a young guy who was bigger, younger, stronger, and... Sounds a lot like Thrill him a little to me. A kind of. It was just a spectacle that, when I've spoken about this in the past, I compared it to Woodstock, only instead of peace, love, and rock and roll, it was gambling, side violence, and attended by many, many gang members. This fight in particular, between old Yankee Sullivan, who they thought would be beaten handily by John Morrissey, who was much younger, lasted 37 rounds, I mean, after a few rounds, both of their faces were a bloody mess, and it's really pretty intense, much more intense than nowadays. with bare knuckle. Yeah, this is bare knuckles. So one of the bets was on who would draw first blood, that kind of thing. Both of them were beaten up pretty badly. The whole fight is a local legend. There's a plaque on the site of where the fight was. There were articles written about it every so often to this day about the fight. Now, interestingly enough...
0: Your screenplay, or Hell's Acres, isn't really even about the boxing match itself. The boxing match is merely the backdrop. Exactly. The the story itself is about what? Now, my screenplay is an adaptation of a novel
1: that was written by a journalist and an early filmmaker in 1938. Uh, The journalist wrote for a local newspaper and he heard all these great stories about Boston Corners and and the the fight itself. But he also heard about horse thieving gangs that if they were stealing racehorses, they would dye the horses a different color and the owners couldn't reclaim them because they couldn't identify their horse. So these two guys who had written a book once before thought this made for a fantastic story. You're basing it on the real circumstances of this no man's land of Boston Corners. The fight is a really exciting climax before Boston Corners was eventually incorporated into New York State. And the rumors of these horse gangs. So these authors thought, all right, here's a great story. Horses are being stolen from the rich stables in Saratoga. They're dyed a different color. They're run through a pass in the mountains where these guys know how to get horses through what otherwise was considered impassable. And the rich horse breeders in Saratoga form their own vigilante group. They send a friend of theirs who lives in Saratoga, who knows horses really well and who had previously been a spy in the Mexican War to find out how this gang gets the horses So this guy, who's the protagonist of the story, goes down there. And while he's figuring out this gang's operation, he finds out that as a last hurrah, before this little town becomes legal, they're going to bring the fight up there. And he thinks, this is perfect. During the melee of the fight, the craziness of thousands of people being there, he's going to work out a scheme to set up these horse thieves where they think they're getting one last score And capture them in the act of trying to get the horses through a pass in the mountains. So you're able to incorporate the true history of the town. The fight is depicted very accurately for how it played out. And when I read the book, Hell's Acres, it was screaming to be made into a movie. Now, the fun challenge of Rather, writing an original screenplay but adapting a novel was really fun and really satisfying. I had also found out that a Hollywood screenwriter had taken a pass at the same adaptation about 10 years before. He'd gotten close but it never got made so uh i uh got the rights to pursue it myself and i've been shopping it around ever since and uh hoping to have luck with somebody who's the right person to move it along but as you can imagine it would be an expensive film to make and so therein lies the challenge
0: it is a very 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 interesting story and i for one would definitely check out that movie where it made Maybe perhaps we can put you in contact with uh, Thomas Heffern.
1: Uh yeah, you had mentioned that, and yeah, uh, I would um, love episode, to
0: episode uh, episode thirty-five.
1: Okay, yes,
0: episode thirty-five. You even made a trailer for this, I believe.
1: I did. It was n- not meant to show off my directing ability because I I don't aspire to direct, but I thought enough of a teaser for just the content would be fun to try to sell the screenplay, and I shot a scene out of the script. Yeah, I show that around as a way to pique the interest of people in the story. And it was a lot of fun to make.
0: Where can people see this trailer if they want to look at it?
1: I have a a site that represents my screenwriting. That's richrosensweig.weebly.com. It does have a link to watching the uh, trailer that I made. Along the top, Um,
0: Hell's Acres trailer.
1: Right. It has the synopses of three of the screenplays that I've written and other information that is just a way for me to be represented online other than as a drummer which uh, is still my career
0: which we'll be talking about in part two ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for listening please continue listening next week part two of our interview with Rich Rosenzweig where we talk about his life as a drummer or musician all the shows that he's played, jazz side, the theater music side, as well as we'll get to the seven questions. So, Rich, thank you so much. Thank you. For Fred. part one. And ladies and gentlemen, please continue listening for part two. As always, if you want to reach me, uh, innkeeper at unionindc.com. Uh, we're on Instagram at pod, at unionin for the end. And at innkeeperfreddy for my personal Instagram. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week for part two. It's funny you mentioned Michael Keaton. I'm sure I'm not the first person to say you favor him.
1: Uh, no, you're not the first. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment.
0: Yeah, Michael Keaton. <laughs> hey, man, he's been Batman.
1: Uh, And I loved... um Birdman? Birdman I love that movie and the soundtrack to that bringing it back was all solo drums yeah and improvised really yeah did not know that yeah Antonio Sanchez one of the great drummers in the world today was asked by the director to do the soundtrack and he was very excited and he prepared all these great themes and licks and then when they came down to actually recording it Inaritu is that the director Mexican director Uh, uh,
0: Alejandro Iñárritu The guy who did uh, The Revenant. Correct. Okay.
1: He told Antonio, he said, no, no, you don't understand. We're going to sit, we're going to look at the movie, and you're going to improvise. And I think the idea was all about tension and release, which is what all great music is about. One of the things that makes that movie so great and why the soundtrack, which is, I guess, 90% drumming, makes you nervous the entire movie. You're You're just all wound up And it's all about the artistic ego and the insecurities of the artist and how wound up you get dealing with being an artist and the drum soundtrack is, that's the power of music in a movie.